Good morning. Today's scripture is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and it can be found on page 914 in the Pew Bible. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. I just wanted to give my friend Dorothy a little feel-good reading for this morning. So thank you, Miss Dorothy, for that, that good work. Good morning, church. My name is Rob Lau. I'm one of the pastors here at Ebenezer. I'm so glad that you have decided to join with us once again uh, as we are journeying together through Lent using the series called Believe. The, the series, the journey of, of Lent is a journey with Christ towards the cross. It's a time when we reflect and when we slow down. It's a time of repentance. And, and we've been using this, this period of time to return to the essential basic beliefs that unite us as Christ's people. Last week, we began this Believe series in the only place that we could, the center of our belief, which is a conversation around God. We talked about why we believe in God. We talked about the nature of that God, that God is powerful and that our our God is good and our God is intimate and close. We also talked about something of the substance of God, that God is three, at work in the world as creator and redeemer and sustainer, but God is also one, that in the Trinity the many become one, just like in the church the many become one. Last week we began with the source of all good things. Today we're going to turn our attention to the other side of the spectrum. Today we're going to talk about sin. Now, having conversations about sin is never an an entirely comfortable prospect, but here's what I want to promise you. We're going to end this conversation with hope, because that is what God gives us. Even in the midst of our sin and brokenness, God gives us hope. So today, in order to have this conversation about what it is that we believe as a New Testament people about sin and its impact in our lives... Today we're going to be walking through a story that's that's probably pretty familiar to us. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 8. If you don't bring, didn't bring your Bible with you today, I want to invite you to, to grab one of the Bibles in the back of the pew in front of you. Uh, John chapter 8. And as we walk through this story, I, I want to caution you because our tendency, it's a, it's a familiar tale, our tendency is going to be to get to the end of the story. But... 
if, if we take our time through this narrative, I think we're going to learn some really, really important things as we journey through this tale. Um, let's start out with the setting of this story. This story takes place on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now, this is a picture of the Temple Mount today. The Temple Mount is dominated by the Dome of the Rock. It's a mosque. It's an Islamic mosque. Uh, but, but in the time of Jesus, of course, this, this was dominated by, by the Temple. And, um, you can, you can see on, on the left side there is the western wall and then the north at the top and the east at the, at the right side. Uh, it was, it was dominated by the temple and it was the centerpiece of all Israelite life. This is where, this is where the Israelites believed that God lived. This is where they would go to offer their atoning sacrifices. They, they would bring a sacrifice and, and they would give it to the priest and the priest would slaughter the sacrifice and, and sprinkle the blood. And I want to show you another picture. These are the southern stairs. Uh, that was the main entrance into the temple on the southern side of the temple. The main entrance to the temple is on the southern side, the southern stairs. It took you through Solomon's colonnade into the temple. And I just, I just want to set the stage for today. So what happened is, people who had engaged in sin, people covered by the, by the pain of their sin, would walk up these very steps, carrying a sacrifice with them. They'd walk into the temple, they'd hand it to a priest, the priest would slaughter, the priest would, would shed the blood, and then as the people departed, they believed that their sin had been atoned for. So they walked up these steps, covered in their sin, but they walked back down the steps, having been set free from that sin. These were stairs of freedom for the people in Christ's day and age. So that's the setting of the story. With that in mind, I want to invite you to look with me at John chapter 8, verse 2 and following. Early in the morning, it's important, when was it? Early in the morning... That's important. Jesus came again to the temple. And all the people came to him. He sat down and he began to teach them. So it's very early in the morning. Maybe maybe the sun isn't up yet. Maybe it's just crested the eastern horizon. But Jesus comes again to the temple. And the people know he is coming. And they start to gather around them. And he begins to teach them. And the next line says, The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, making her stand before them all. When, when did this happen again? Early in the morning. This woman had been caught in the very act of adultery. What does that tell us? Well, more than likely what that tells us is that the woman had actually not been caught that morning in the act of adultery. Probably she'd been caught the night before. And the Pharisees, rather than exacting judgment on her, the Pharisees waited until Jesus was set up in the temple and had begun to teach. The Pharisees weren't so concerned with the woman or her unrighteousness. The Pharisees ultimately wanted to trick Jesus. That's why they waited until this time. Verse 3, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? By the way, the Pharisees are right. That is, in fact, what the law says. Well, they were were right in part. 
They were referencing a, a scripture from Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. And here's, here's what that, that scripture says. Leviticus 20.10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. They were missing somebody, weren't they? Yeah, they were missing somebody. The Pharisees were not interested in maintaining the law. They were interested in getting Jesus. They only brought half of the equation. They were more interested in being right than being righteous, and it didn't matter who they hurt to prove how right they were. Let's keep going. In verse 5, Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to test him, so they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. This is important in the story too. See, these Pharisees that brought the woman before Jesus, when when they talked about the all-important law of Moses, when they talked about where the law of Moses came from, what they believed was that God actually gave the law of Moses to Moses on Mount Sinai, but God didn't just miracle it there. They believed that a theophany took place, a physical manifestation of God, that quite literally, God wrote the law of Moses with God's finger on the tablets. So what does Jesus do? When confronted with the law of Moses, Jesus kneels and begins to write with his finger on the ground. The Pharisees uh, persisted. They kept, they kept wanting Jesus to say something. But all Jesus did was kneel silently and write. What did he write? I, I don't know what he wrote. But I do know that he was silent. He kept writing on the ground. He kept being quiet. And the longer the Pharisees waited, the more silent Jesus was, the more certain the Pharisees were that they had gotten him. But what Jesus was doing was giving them time to expose their hearts to the crowd. What Jesus was doing was giving them time to expose their hearts to themselves because in verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, Jesus straightened up and he said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin to be the first, be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he knelt down and started writing on the ground. This is why the setting of the story is so important. You see, the Pharisees weren't people who casually observed the law. They weren't people who on occasion once a year would make a sacrifice on Yom Kippur for their sins. These were people who made sacrifices regularly and often they had climbed those stairs. We talked about earlier in the story, they climbed those stairs over and over and over again, acknowledging that they were covered in sin and they needed God's mercy. And so in this setting... In this place where those very men needed the mercy of God, where they begged for it time and time again, in that place, Jesus says, look around. Where are you? This is the place. This is the place where over and over again, you have come for mercy. So let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. It was brilliant. I think it's worth noting, church, there was someone in the crowd that day who had no sin. Amen? You know what else he didn't have? A stone. In verse 9, 
When they heard this, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened, and he looked at her and he said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, listen to the question. Jesus didn't say, has no one accused you? She stood accused. Jesus didn't even ask her if she was guilty. Jesus knew she was guilty. Jesus asked her if there was no one left to condemn her. Is there no one left here to force you to pay for the consequences of your sin? Says Jesus. Does no one condemn you? We can't miss how important this is because it's what comes next. It's what comes next in the story that we all wait for. Maybe there are people in here who've been waiting for that next line all their lives because what Jesus says to her is, neither do I condemn you. Jesus says, I'm not going to force you to pay for your sin. And Jesus is saying something incredible here. And it's so easy for us to miss it. But what we find in this story is the foundation of the New Testament covenant through Jesus Christ. What Jesus says to this woman on the temple mount, right there in the midst of the temple, what Jesus says to her is, I am greater than Moses. I'm bigger than this temple. I am more righteous even than the law. Sometimes we can confuse covenants. There's an old covenant and there's a new covenant. Under the old covenant, when we sinned, we broke God's law. Under the new covenant, when we sin, we break God's heart. Because what God knows about sin is that in time, sin will break us. Under the old covenant, when we sinned, we broke God's law. In the new covenant, when we sin, we break God's heart because God knows that in time, sin will break us. Our New Testament understanding of sin tells us that sin isn't about the rules anymore. Sin is engaging in that which breaks the heart of God and steals our abundant life. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he says, we are not under the law. We are under grace. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we should just stop reading our Bibles because we're under grace? No. But we have to understand this. I don't read the Bible and try to solicit its its wisdom because I have to. I read the Bible every day of my life and try and build my life around the wisdom I find in Scripture because it is that wisdom that helps me live life more fully. Have you ever asked yourself why it is that God determines that certain things are sinful? Is it because God wants to steal our fun? No. God knows that sin will sap our lives. God wants to save us. Let's look at our story one more time. Because here's the thing. If Jesus had stopped here, if that's where the story had ended, does no one condemn you? No one, sir. Well, neither do I condemn you. It would have been a great little, nice, nice little story. Quaint, even. But that's not where Jesus stopped. In verse 
11. Jesus had said, does no one condemn you? In verse 11, she said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And this should shock us. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. What? Stop sinning. Jesus said, I don't condemn you, but leave here and don't sin anymore. On this St. Patrick's Day, he might as well have told her to grow a green beard. Amen? Jesus asked her to do something she couldn't do. But this is where I think the tone is important in understanding Jesus today. Because what Jesus had already said was that his tone was not one of condemnation. He actually verbally said that, I don't condemn you. Jesus wasn't judging her. Jesus was urging her, do not sin anymore. Because here's what, here's what Jesus knew, and we know this too. Every sin has a consequence. Every sin has a penalty. Sin kills things, church. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul tells us as much. He says, the wages of sin is death. Sin kills things. Sin kills our conscience. If I do something that I know is wrong and I do it over and over and over again before long, I'll forget that it was wrong. Because sin kills things. Sin can kill our bodies Sin can kill our self-respect. Sin can kill our relationships. Sin can kill our families. There are probably people in this room whose families are being torn apart right now by sin. Sin kills things. Jesus urges this woman to stop sinning because what Jesus knew is that sin has consequences. Jesus doesn't tell her to stop sinning because otherwise God would get her. You see that, right? Jesus didn't tell her to stop sinning because otherwise God would get her. Jesus had already said, I do not condemn you. Jesus didn't tell her to stop sinning because otherwise God was going to get her. He urges her to stop sinning because he loved her. And he knew that sin would crush her. And sin can crush us too. It can steal our lives. So here's the most important question of the day. What is the sin that's sapping your life? Maybe it's a big one. Maybe it's an affair. Stop it. Maybe it's, maybe it's pornography. Stop it. Maybe, and church people are susceptible to this, and I know because I am one, maybe there are some people in here who are thinking, I I can't really think of any sin in my life. That's called self-righteousness. Stop it! (laughs) What is the sin that is sapping your life? Friends, the season of Lent is all about asking ourselves that question. What is the sin that is sapping my life? And then covenanting with God that we will stop doing the thing that breaks God's heart and steals our life. 
And you might say, but pastor, it's not that easy. Well, of course it's not easy. But we have to understand the nature of sin. Sin kills things, church. Jesus doesn't condemn this woman. And through the cross, Jesus doesn't condemn those of us who accept him as our Savior either. Jesus came to give us life, abundant, beautiful life, and sin steals that life. Sin leads to death. And so Jesus, because he loved her and because he loves us, Jesus says, stop it. Let me put that on pause for just a second. And let me talk to a whole other group of people in here. Because I do think, and I'm guilty of this sometimes, I'm guilty of being self-righteous. I think there are times that we in the church think of ourselves as more righteous than other people, which is what the Pharisees did. And I confess that there are times I do that. But here, there's another group of people that come to church too. This other group of people is a group of people who committed some sin at some point in their past. And they feel so guilty about that sin that they've convinced themselves that there is no way, even as big as God is, there is no way God could forgive me for doing that thing. But there's this verse in the Bible called 1 John 1, 9, and it says this. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Not a little bit of it, not some of it, not all but the worst of it. God is willing to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness and God is powerful enough to do it. Let me explain. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, trying to explain this issue of sin, he says, through one man, a man named Adam, sin entered the world. And through another man, a man named Jesus, sin was conquered in the world. And if we're not careful, when we read that text, we can start to think that Adam and Jesus were kind of on equal footing. Mm -mm. That could lead us to believe that the contest between righteousness and sin was a hotly debated contest. But that's not true. If this were a football game, it would be a shutout. If we were on Dancing with the Stars right now, Jesus would get 30 and sin would get zero. I'm just trying to bring everybody together in in this, this whole analogy. What's the point? Church, the point is that our God and our Savior Jesus Christ didn't eke out a victory over sin. Jesus destroyed it. He crushed it. Sin was vanquished. It is in its death throes even now. It's true. It's true. And so how dare I, if I have confessed that sin, how dare I believe that God's grace is not powerful enough? Because Jesus came to set us free from sin. The one who had no sin, the only one who had the right to condemn, chose not to. Neither do I condemn you, says Jesus. Now go and sin no more. Here's what I want you to know. And here's the main takeaway of our time this morning together. 
Jesus didn't tell this woman to stop sinning because he wanted to keep her out of hell. It didn't matter how righteous she was from this point forward in her life. She never could have been righteous enough to achieve salvation based on her own actions. So Jesus didn't tell her to stop sinning because he wanted to keep her out of hell. And Jesus didn't tell her to sin no more because he wanted to rob her of life's experiences. Jesus told this woman to go and sin no more because he wanted her to experience the fullness of life. And that's what Jesus wants for you and for me too. I'll talk more next week about this process of regeneration that occurs through Christ. But I really want to end this conversation on sin by returning to something we saw earlier. These are a picture of the southern stairs. Again, this was the this was the main entrance into the temple in Jerusalem. These were the stairs people walked up covered in their sin and they walked back down having been set free. You know what dominates this picture in my mind? You can't get in there anymore. It's blocked off. You couldn't offer your own sacrifice for your sin, nor could I, even if we wanted to. Why is that? Because just a few short months after this story in the temple court, just a few steps from the temple mount, the consequence of this woman's sin and all of our sin would become very real. Someone did die for her adultery. And for ours. Someone died for her sin. And for ours. A tremendous gesture of love and grace that we can't even begin to understand. But what we must know is that the work is finished. When we accept Christ, we are reunited with God. We are set free from life that leads to death. We are set free to begin truly living. And it will take time to break old habits and build new ones. It will take the help of the Holy Spirit. But sin, that thing that robs us of our lives, has been conquered. And the final word on sin must belong to Jesus Christ. Because if we stand today before Christ as that woman did so long ago, if we acknowledge our guilt, here's what Jesus says. He says, who is left to condemn you? What a great idea. Who is there left to condemn you? There's only one person in the world that has the right to condemn us for our sin and he has chosen not to. So who is left to condemn you? That means it's not my job to condemn someone else. But here's what it really means. When I understand the work of Jesus Christ in my own life, when I understand that His grace is at work inside of me, I don't even have the right to condemn myself anymore. That is how great is the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So yes, the final word belongs to Him. The one who says, I do not condemn you. But I love you. And sin could kill you. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. 
Now go and sin no more. Would you pray with me, church? God, there are times in our lives where we feel covered in our mistakes, our failures, in our sin. There are times that we feel so covered up by it we can't breathe, that we feel sin leading to death. And then we call out your name. And we confess. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole hearts. We failed to be obedient. We've broken your law and rebelled against your love. We haven't loved our neighbors. We haven't heard the cry of the needy. We've hurt ourselves. We've hurt others. We've hurt you, O oh God. We confess. And we hear your voice anew just as it sounded so long ago on that holy mountain. As you say, I do not condemn you. I forgive you. Go and sin no more. God, I'm mindful of the fact that there may be some people in this room today who have perhaps never asked for your forgiveness or who maybe haven't spoken to you in a long, long time. God, I pray that you would inspire within all of us a recognition that you've come to give us life. Beautiful, beautiful life. And if we're not experiencing the fullness of life, if we haven't accepted you as our Savior, God, I pray the people in this room might do so today by simply offering a prayer like this. Jesus, I have sinned. I've hurt you. I've hurt others. I've hurt myself. And I have no hope without you. So forgive me. Today I accept you as my Savior. Today I accept you as my Lord. And will follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.